This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're thrilled to have a return guest, Bonnie McDonald, the president and CEO of Landmarks Illinois. We're going to be talking all, all things about preservation in Illinois, their 50th anniversary, looking ahead, a fellowship, um, the National Preservation Partners Network, where I've gotten to know Bonnie really well. Um, but uh, before we do all of that, uh, if you didn't listen to Bonnie's first episode, and, and shame on you, you can go back and, and get double the Bonnie if you'd like. Um, but we love to get to know our guests. So for people who aren't familiar with you, Bonnie, let's remind our listeners, where'd you grow up? And when did you get so interested in history? Yes. Well, Nick, first of all, thank you for having me back. I'm honored to be a return guest on PreserveCast, and it's always a joy to talk with you. And you asked me this question last time, so I'm going to try to tell something a little bit different. And for, you know, for the listeners, if my accent doesn't give me away, I am from Minnesota, and I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Minneapolis, which I think is part and parcel to, to why I'm a preservationist. And, and here's why. We, you know, we lived in a succession of uh, ever-expanding suburbs uh, from the first ring to the second ring to the third ring. And my, my parents just kept uh, moving us, you know, into different opportunities for them. I, I want to say that they were always trying to do their best. But by the time I got to high school, I had lived in six different communities, six different places. And what I found is, is that I think that has turned me to preservation because preservation is about rootedness. Uh, you know, it's about belonging and uh, an identity. And for me, I see, I see people be, you know, who are so passionate about places because it's about community to them. And in many ways, I, I think that's what was missing in, you know, in my upbringing. And despite growing up in, in a place that um, was, in you know, many ways supportive of history and looking at the, you know, the history of Indigenous peoples, certainly, and, the, you know, the history of how these suburbs were built, I just never felt as though we had a story, you know, that we had roots. So that is what preservation is all about to me. So, you know, I come from a long line of storytellers and I, you know, Nick, you've heard many of my bad stories, uh, but, you know, the, um, that storytelling really imbued me with a, an idea of the importance of knowing, you know, knowing your history and also knowing other people's history as being, you know, a good citizen. Um, you know, we, we need to understand who we are and where we're from in order to make better decisions. And uh, places are obviously the best, you know, the best way for us to tell stories um, so, you know, I come from, from people who believe that history is important. You know, we, uh, from everything from visiting historic sites, which is a typical story for many preservationists, you know, we started visiting historic sites from, I think, as early as I can remember, uh, but to talking about history at the dinner table, you know, we, we had this rare uh, family where, you know, even as a little kid, four or five years old, I remember sitting at the dinner table with my grandparents and my parents, and, you know, they were talking about historic events. And, you know, yeah, we had to sit there. <laughs> you know, we had to sit through that. But later, they actually involved us in those conversations. And I think, you know, this is this is a really great model that I can talk about with other people um, about that opportunity to involve kids in, you know, in understanding how they're a part of history and, and how history impacts them also. Well, it's, it's, it's funny you say that because, of course, I do that with my daughter and uh, I'll, I'll be lucky if she, if she turns into a little, little Bonnie McDonald. We'd, <laughs> we'd be very proud of that. So maybe, maybe we have a shot at that. I don't know. 
I, I uh, see your posts. I just want to say that that um, you know you you have done an excellent job of you know taking your daughter to see the places important to you, and I am I am certain that she is going to grow into a person who respects history and uh, and shares it as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I've learned through PreserveCast that basically, as you said, the common thread is take, dragging your kids to historic sites and then that, <laughs> that gets them excited. So I, I, I was like, okay, I'm all in on that. So, <laughs> right. so, um, so we got to know each other and like, this has been probably for me and I'm not just trying to, to gush here, but this has been one of the best parts of being a part of the Partners Network is having the opportunity to get to know you. Like it has been, you know, I think in our respective leadership roles in the network, we got to know each other really well. Um, and so you know, in addition to your work in Illinois, and we're going to talk all about that, of course, you've led what is known as the now the National Preservation Partners Network. It's its own standalone organization through a period of, of really tremendous growth. Um, so we've talked, we've danced around the network a few times. We've had people on who have different roles in it and, and everything like that. But I think it would be, you know, it's, it's a good opportunity for you to talk to us about the network and get people listening to know about it who might be interested or maybe even should be joining. So what should listeners know about it if you're giving them sort of the, the elevator pitch? And then we'll talk about, you know, what you accomplished as chair and all that kind of stuff. But what is the network for people mm-hmm. listening? Yes, the the National Preservation Partners Network is essentially the the connective tissue of the the organized preservation movement around the country, and and expanding into I think connecting people who may not see themselves uh, as traditional preservationists, but certainly are welcome as as part of a network of people who care about preserving place, preserving history, and you know, the network represents, uh, at this point, uh, almost 100 different organizations, preservation organizations at the, the local, the regional, state, and national level from, you know, from, of course, uh, Baltimore Heritage going to your, you know, to, to your neck of the woods, Nick, um, you know, to Preservation Maryland, and all the way to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. So, you know, this, I, I think of it as that connective tissue, as really a, a way that the preservation community strengthens each other with their best practices, you know, with their knowledge, and, and honestly, with a great deal of support uh, for, you know, for those who are struggling with something in particular, um, this is where we each come to, I, you know, think, come to build a stronger preservation movement. Um, so in, you know, it started in April of 2018. So it's pretty new, everyone. The, this became a new national organization with this, uh, with this vision of having a, a network of people connected through, you know, through us, I think of it as a spider web, you know, so instead of it being a more traditional hierarchical connection that some people may think of between, you know, the local talks to the state, the state talks to the national this um, this model is really uh, about members connecting with each other, and I think that's its strength. Uh, we come from a, a history of doing this within the National Trust for Historic Preservation. So, the, you know, of course, the preservation movement has been talking with each other uh, for for decades, and we did that in an informal way within the the work of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Uh, but in 2018, we saw an opportunity to you know to really formalize that process to form our own organization, and I think. To, to strengthen the opportunity around what we could provide to this movement. Yeah, it's a, it's an exciting moment for the preservation community. And I think you're right. It's sort of this iterative network wherever there's no one organization or anything that's in charge. It's sort of like we come together and figure out what our priorities are going to be. So you um, followed the, the, the founding chair. Um, and, you know, I'm curious, like, you know, obviously you got a lot done um, in your time as chair. 
what are, what are you proud of? And I, I suppose, what do you hope sort of as, as a follow-on to that, where the network will, what, what are you hoping that the network will provide for sort of the broader, you know, American preservation community? And I say American because we have some listeners across the pond. Of course, and and I'm certainly glad that you you have a, a, a big following because you know I think what the network does is it brings together the the ideas and the efforts of people from all different corners of preservation, and that's that's not just here. Of course, we talk with our colleagues internationally, um, you know. But but what we've been able to accomplish in the first three years, essentially, of this of this organization, is to establish a strong network and connection between these partner organizations. And the this has been done in collaboration, of course, you know, in community with many different people. So uh, you know, I I've had the privilege of chairing the organization, chairing this amazing board of directors that we have, which is encompasses about 20 different uh, leaders from around the country. But really, you know, my work has been to uh, marshal their resources, marshal their exceptional knowledge to create a strong foundation for this organization to now grow under your leadership. Uh, so if listeners do not know, I'm, I'm proud to say that Nick is going to be the next chair. He's been our vice chairman of the board the, the entire time that, that I have been the chair and we have worked collaboratively together to do all of this work. Um, so, you know, really the, proud, the proudest achievement is just being able to collaborate with incredible people to create a strong network for for growth and support of this movement uh, from, you know, providing practices and and policies to, I think, the even more important um, hiring of our program director, Rebecca Harris, who previously worked for Historic New England and the National Trust for Historic Preservation, who is simply incredible. And I think she is going to uh, implement a vision for this organization to continually strengthen the the opportunities for programming and connection. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too. I think just from like a history perspective, the preservation community in, in America and just American preservation has always been sort of a grassroots endeavor, um, and it's important to have these big national groups to kind of push the agenda at the federal level and things like that. But um, I think having sort of this organized um, entity that pulls together the grassroots is just it's sort of part and parcel of where we've been. Um, but it's also an opportunity to push preservation in the directions that I think you and I and, and many others feel like it, it should be going, which maybe is a good segue to talking about, you know, okay, let's take a look at a preservation group like Landmarks Illinois that you lead that now mm-hmm. is officially 50 years old. Um, so you, you, you are actually eligible, or at least the organization is eligible <laughs> for inclusion on the National Register. Um, so hopefully, hopefully you, can, you can do that. But I, I think, you know, it's it just like the Partners Network is sort of looking forward um, you know, 50 years is an opportunity to look back and then look forward. So I guess, first and foremost, what does 50 years of preservation look like for Landmarks Illinois? Like, and, and you could take that question in a thousand different ways, but is it, you know, do you see tremendous change and growth and opportunity? Are you really proud of things that you've done in the past, but need to change? Like, what are, what are you looking at? And then maybe we'll talk about sort of relevance and, and where this all heads, but but what does 50 years look like for a preservation group? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we fall, Landmarks Illinois falls into the middle, I would say, of the, the you know, the spectrum of preservation organizations in the, in the country. Of course, you run an organization, Preservation Maryland is much older than us, I think, is it 90 years 90. old? This is yes, 90. Yes, 90. So we're just a kid compared to, to you all. Uh, but then... That's right. Then I think about uh, organizations like the Decay Devils, who are a pretty informal organization, really um, grassroots.
Roots, Ad Hoc, Tactical, uh, out of Gary, Indiana, and you know they're brand new. And you know we we span, I think the you know obviously the history of preservation, but also the opportunity for uh, this uh, you know for this field to you know, to, to evolve and come together. So I just wanted to put us in context that 50 years is certainly an accomplishment, but there are people who are achieving things who are much older than us and, and much younger than us. Um, so we don't, we don't necessarily see ourselves in the, in the eye of exceptionalism. Um, more, it's what can we do to, to use this anniversary to contribute to the growth and evolution of this movement, which is truly necessary at this point. You know, so, so what does it look like for us? Um, you know, as we've done some reflection, of course, which is inherent in, a, in an anniversary and a milestone like this, you know, we found that we're very much the same as we were when we started. And, and that gives me some relief. That gives me some comfort uh, because organizations, nonprofits can have a tendency to stray from their mission, can have, you know, can stray um, when they have opportunities and, and, and sometimes don't, um, don't follow their core mission or their core idea that they were founded on. And, and we do, um, you know, our organization, like many, was founded to save a, a particular property. It was the Chicago Stock Exchange, which was designed by Louis Sullivan and Dankmar Adler um, around the time of the, the World Columbian Exposition in Chicago that many have heard of. Yeah, but, but really what the core idea is, it's people who care about place and what place tells us about our history and our identity. You know, Chicago is known in the, around the world as one of the great cities of architecture. And it's these stories of the, the architects who rebuilt the city after the fire that is part of our identity. And so I just want to say that we still do that. We are still people saving places for people and with people and that idea you know that idea persists and I, I'm very proud of that you know at the same time we took this as an opportunity to to really deeply reflect on what we're doing wrong you know what what does the preservation field need to do to in either enhance some would say enhance its relevance or some would say become relevant and then that will come later I'm sure in our our interview um, so what our future looks like after you know after we've reached this milestone and into the next 50 years is is honestly um, taking this deep reflection that we can talk about and and making substantial change so that really the people in communities who um, these these places are about them and their belonging are those that are making the decisions about what happens with them. So yeah, I mean, let's talk about that. So how, how did you, I mean, there's so many different ways of doing this, but how did you contemplate the next 50 years in relevance and, and what have you learned in the process what are these guiding principles how did you how did you approach this because I, I not only is it interesting just about what you've done but I think it could be instructive for people who you know maybe are coming up on an anniversary or, or even not and they just want to figure out what matters and and why they exist and why they should exist and things like that um you know what, what how did you guys do it Mm-hmm. Well, you know, thank you for this uh, this opportunity to talk about it because this was really our intent in, uh, you know, in publishing information and in, you know promoting information about how we approached our anniversary that. It could be, you know, it maybe not a model. We hope it is, but but honestly, um, you know, that it's a contribution to the field for people to see whether they they think this is a, a model they could adopt or or not. Um, so the way we approached this, starting about eighteen months ago, uh, we asked ourselves, you know, what what do we want to do with this opportunity that's coming? And twenty twenty one is our fiftieth anniversary, uh, and. You know, as we were talking, I said, ah, do we want to, you know, of course, like anybody, do you want to do a book? Do you want to do a, you know, a PBS special? Um, you know, all these things are rolling off from, from our board members. 
And, and I, I really challenge that because if you're going to spend that resource doing this work, not only your, your money, but your time, your, your human capital and, um, you know, your volunteer time, didn't, you know, didn't we want that to be a mandate to look forward in, instead of necessarily looking backward? And thankfully, our board of directors accepted that challenge and my entire team as well became very excited about this idea. And it came out of our, you know, our noticing what was happening in our environment and that we also wanted to look more broadly at what was happening in the rest of the preservation movement around the country. And could we use this opportunity to do something that, again, would, would contribute or be, be a gift to others who didn't have the same level of resource or opportunity that we did? Um, so the, the process that we took after we made that decision that this moment was a mandate for us was essentially we... we um, put together a think tank and, uh, you know, a think tank of, of over 30 people who were both inside and outside of preservation. I, I don't like to characterize people that way, um, but in, in the context, uh, you know, we brought in those who, who do not see themselves as preservationists, who would not use that label, um, even though some of the work that they do might have touched historic or older places, and uh, and and specifically brought what we would call disruptors, those who see the issues uh, in our field around equity and inclusion, diversity, um, uh, around accessibility, uh, gentrification, and we wanted to hear directly from them about what their truths were around preservation. In our minds, you have to you have to sit down and listen. Um, we we end up defending ourselves many times instead of sitting down and really listening to those who would criticize us and and have a you know, a deep conversation around what they see, what are the truths that they have um, and what they've experienced. So this think tank essentially had, had disruptors, it had emerging preservationists, traditional preservationists, and, and those we might call the accidental preservationists, I think as the National Trust coined a number of years ago. And we spent 16 months in monthly conversations around each of these deep topics, uh, you know, accessibility, inclusion, equity. What does that look like for our field? What, what has prevented this from happening? What would ensure that this happens in um, the, the future to truly represent the "Quote unquote American story," but you know beyond that, of course, um, reflecting on the the indigenous sovereignty of those who in, you know who had been here uh, before colonization, and making sure that's a part of our story. Um, so, with all of that discussion, we wanted to publish a manifesto. And, uh, you know, that started out as essentially, what is our philosophical approach to the change that's needed in preservation? And, uh, and then we decided, well, that's a, that's a little bit of a heated political term. And manifesto sounds like, you know, we're, we're going out, um, you know, with our, with our fists raised. And in, in a sense, we are, but we felt like we didn't, we didn't want that connotation around it. So uh, we opted for instead, um, a set of guiding principles. And after that, softer. that much... Yeah, a little softer. So essentially our guiding principles, which have just been published there on our website at landmarks.org, are seen as our uh, code of conduct. So how are we actually going to behave? How are we going to implement our values as an organization and use this as the aspiration to truly become uh, the resource that uh, that people in the future will need us to be? Or in the end, that the resource itself might, uh, you know, might be shared, uh, you know, openly and the organization changes dr drastically, markedly in the future in, in how it operates or, um, you know, how it does its work. I sort anticipate that. Well, I think that maybe that's a good place for us to take a pause, come back, maybe talk briefly about some of the guiding principles, and then also how this kind of ties into the work that you've done in the Fitch Fellowship. Um, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 
This week's PreserveCast is sponsored by Historic Roofing. Historic Roofing is your old house specialist. They're a small, family-run company of master craftsmen providing clients with consultations and expertise in restoration, maintenance, and repair in the lost arts and crafts of slate, tile, and architectural metal roofing since 1990. Historic Roofing has saved many prominent buildings in the Washington metropolitan area. To learn more about Historic Roofing's many services, visit historicroofingcompany.com, or better yet, give us a call at 410-741-0572. They'd love to discuss the history of your building and what its history holds. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Thrilled to be joined again by Bonnie McDonald, the president and CEO of Landmarks Illinois. Um, we've been talking all about the work that they've been doing as a part of their 50th anniversary, not only looking back, but really looking forward and coming up with these guiding principles. Um, Bonnie, before we took the break, we were talking about that. You were sort of, you said that they're on your website. Do you want to share a few of them that people might find interesting or maybe even surprising? Yes, I'm uh, happy to because we truly encourage our, you know, our colleagues uh, here and, and around the world to look at them because we want them to be interrogated. Uh, this this is not the the end all be all of what the future is going to look like. In fact, if there's anything that we've learned, we know that the uh, this work is going to continually change as more people are included, more voices are included, and we want we want these guiding principles as people would see them to uh, to evolve as we try as we work on actually implementing them. And I just want to say, we, we know that we're going to do things wrong. <laughs> that is something that I think prevents people from moving forward, especially in, in work where they may not feel they have all the skills, all of the experience. Um, they may not have diverse voices around the table right now, uh, but we continuously talk about um, ensuring, inviting, making welcoming space for diverse voices, ev- everything from, of course, racial and ethnic diversity to people with disabilities to the LGBTQAI community, indigenous peoples, uh, people of different ages um, and uh, backgrounds, uh, skill sets, geographies. I mean, this all is included in our vision of diversity. And that the I know there's, uh, as I said, some fear because um, not everybody understands uh, how to encourage, participate in, be an ally or a co-conspirator to social justice or racial justice, environmental or, or climate justice, as it's called. But we have to start somewhere. And that is something we, you know, we can certainly discuss um, when we get to the, the Fitch Fellowship. But what, what I learned in talking with many people is, is that we all want to do something to move forward in this field to identify um, and, and really... Uh, um, I would say execute on the problems that we see going forward. We want to stop talking and really start doing. So the guiding principles, if, if you take a look at them, um, are, are fairly simple in language, but deep in meaning. There are only five of them. After, after 16 months, somebody say, wow, you, you, you know, five? <laughs> that's, all you, that's all you all uh, came up with. But they're, um, every word that's used in here is, in, is intentional, was, uh, again, um, socialized and interrogated and intentionally chosen by this very diverse group of people. And um, so I'll just start. You know, one of them, for example, we see them all as equal, of equal importance, but naturally when anybody reads a list, they're going to assume that number one is the most important. So we did put number one, that fighting for and modeling justice, equity, inclusion, diversity, and accessibility is right at the top of our list and that we will do that working together with our partners and in our, our mutual capacities to forward this um, 
because we don't want to create uh, they and us. We see this as an opportunity to create community around uh, around these ideas. Um, so within that are, are a set of bullet points about how we're going to do this, even though there are many, many ways that we're going to approach fighting for and modeling um, justice, equity, et cetera. Um, but it includes, for, for example, acknowledging the lives and land of Illinois' ancestral and current Native communities and their sovereignty. And that is something some may not think about in preservation, but it's tremendously important to understand, you know, where we are, where we, where we stand as we do this work, and what some of the perceptions are um, from our Indigenous partners about the buildings that we're saving um, and these places. Um, so, you know, moving forward, you'll see in these principles the uh, confronting climate change and promoting environmental justice, for example, and then going more into the, the work that we do as respectful partners and having positive and mutually beneficial relationships. Um, and finally, I, th I think really in, in many ways, it's number five, but it's, it's um, endemic in everything as being fully transparent and accountable uh, and inviting people to keep us accountable to these principles. Well, this is, uh, this is big stuff, Bonnie. <laughs> keeping keeping yourself accountable, man. You're uh, you're setting setting the bar high, and that's good. I mean, I think a lot of people are going to be looking at this, and as you said, people can find it on your website um, and kind of dig into this. Um, and I'm curious, and it is a good way to kind of like talk a little bit about the Fitch Fellowship too. How was this work informed by that? What what? Well, first off, what is the Fitch Fellowship? What have you? What are you know? In your abundant spare time, what are you doing with this? And how did that inform this process as well? Yeah, the the Fitch Fellowship, as it's called, um, you know, that's sort of our, our acronym in a way for it is is the James Marston Fitch Charitable Foundation's uh, Mid Career Fellowship, and we are so privileged in this field to have a foundation that recognizes that those of us who are mid career, and however you define that, I'm I'm about twenty years into my preservation career at this point, that we have um, we have knowledge that we would like to explore, but we often don't have time to do that because we are, you know, chairing national boards and, and uh, um, trying to, you know, change our organizations and handling our day-to-day -day work. And they give us the opportunity through this fellowship to really take a sabbatical and, um, and explore topics that are important nationally to, to the preservation movement, to preservation practice. And I'm, I'm so proud that, that they chose um, this project for the one of three 2020 mid-career fellowships amongst the, I, I know there were, um, there were, I think over 40 or 50 applicants. And so I, I feel a great sense of duty to uh, deliver, you know, some exceptional work to, um, to or have earned this, this fellowship um, and recognizing that I'm sure there are uh, 39 other wonderful projects that could have been supported by this. So I'm, I'm excited certainly to have this opportunity. And the pandemic got a little bit in the way though, Nick, in that um, my, my vision in the beginning was really to continue to do a set of interviews that had started in 2019 through actually a, a grant from the uh, Peter Brink Mentoring Fund at the National Trust um, to go out and talk to people. I, I, what I've learned in this process of trying to explore change and preservation is that there's a deep, deep desire for change, but people don't necessarily have the, the wherewithal to talk with each other about this. Um, some because we're so busy and others because we have some significant silos in, in preservation practice. Um, so I wanted to cut through those silos and really go and talk with people deeply about their thoughts on what they see in preservation. 
Um, so the, the fellowship as a whole is to take all of that information from, you know, from these interviews and to digest it into what's what's we're calling a guidebook to um, preservation's relevancy. And I'm excited to talk more. I, I'm sure you have questions, uh, but to talk more about what that will look like. Yeah, well, I mean... Good question. What's it going to look like? <laughs> What's it going to look like? Uh, so, you know, this um, this project, it, it was, you know, so, sort of sounds like, um, you know, it just came off the top of my head, but it actually relates back to the, the think tank that I mentioned, which we called our 50th anniversary task force. Uh, so as we were going through the process of, of interrogating these different topics on a monthly basis, once again, we said, we need to understand if we are, uh, if we're alone in this, do, you know, are what we're experiencing in Illinois, is that what other people are experiencing around the country? If we're going to put forward this idea of a model uh, of, of uh, preservation practice going forward, of a, a nonprofit going forward, forward. We have to understand where others are uh, because we can't assume that, that we represent everyone. And so I offered essentially, uh, you know, to go out and talk with people and have the support of, of the board of directors and my team to do that. So I just want to say this was intended as essentially a, a nationally, uh, a national peer environmental scan uh, to think of it in its formal terms. Um, you know, where did everybody else stand? And with that information, we could actually make these guiding principles better and, and hopefully more relevant in our um, practice within the field as a whole. Um, so what it will look like after taking in, you know, in all of this information over a, a period of two years and 130 interviews at this point. 130. Um, that's, 130. That's, that's insane, Bonnie. That's a lot of, and I, and, and, and you had the dubious distinction of interviewing me at one point too. Yes, and in fact, Nick, you were amongst the first. Uh, so in, this initially that? started, yeah. The, and you and you well, kept with it even after that interview. You were like, "I'm still going to do this." That was. I know. You know I, I almost I almost stopped after I that know, one. I know. I um, know there was because, a moment of concern. You, you said it all. Um, we, you know, we had a wonderful conversation and, you know, it just continued to open up additional questions. Um, so, you know, every person I talked to, like you, who has done incredible things in our field, PreserveCast being one of them, where, where you've really broken boundaries, each one of the people I talked to had other people they said I needed to talk to, which naturally happens. And um, it's, it's just, again, such an incredible privilege to be able to have this, uh, this amount of time to talk with somebody for, in most cases, hours, uh, two hours, three hours at some point, uh, to pick their brain about what change they want to see. What did they see in preservation? Is there needed change? And uh, what did they think that that should look like? Now, are so people going to be able to, to read this, to, to see these? Are there going to be descriptions of all these interviews? How do, because it, it seems like this is really valuable material. So where where will we eventually see this? Yes, absolutely. The So to answer the question directly, every interview um, with the permission of the person who was interviewed is going to be included in uh, the relevancy guidebook. And so it will be an addendum uh, to, or an appendix uh, to the work so that each and every person who wants to read that information has direct access to it. We felt that was tremendously important is that we we are not the interpreters of this. Um, I, you know, my job is certainly to take this information, to condense it, and to do my, my work that I see as offering opportunities, offering options for organizations around the country to, um, to take advantage of, you know, to, to take the lessons learned from others and apply them as they see fit. So there's, I just want to say there's no one way of doing this. And I thought that was tremendously important was not to say that this is a, um, you know, this is necessarily a 
you know, a mandate, you have to do these 10 things in order to be a relevant organization or for preservation to be relevant. That is just not, um, that is not applicable. Each and every organization and preservation is different. That's our strength and that's our weakness in some ways. Um, you know, our strength is that we are localized. We see what our local conditions are. We see what the local challenges and opportunities are and, and we, we pursue them. Um, and we do that in, in our own way. But at the same time, we all do it individually. And instead of necessarily seeing that there are five other organizations around the country that have tackled this problem and that there are some models and best practices, um, you know, you often don't have time as a director to go looking for that. So what I saw is that this at least condenses those best practices, gives options and opportunities for localized um, implementation of the ones that they see fit. Um, so there will be that, um, that, you know, that piece of the guidebook, but then also you can go and read Nick Redding's interview as long as he approves um, what is written there. I, I didn't editorialize, Nick. Um, yeah, but, I, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, be there. there'll be little brackets, you know, the, the little explanations of, well, this is what he said. I'm not, I'm not condoning this, but yeah. That's right. Uh, That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's funny, you know, you, you're on a second time. It's almost like we need to have you back for a third once the, the full trifecta. You'd be the first third, the first repeat. <laughs> Um, to, to talk about the final form of the project. So, I mean, I think that that's a, you know, I guess a, to, to be continued um, uh, when, it, when it comes to that. When will we, before we move to our conclusion here, when, when will we see that come out? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the final guidebook is intended for publication in October of 2021. And I, I certainly have the hopes of doing that uh, before the Past Forward Conference hosted by the National Trust. And also at that conference, going back to the National Preservation Partners Network, we have a meeting there. And I, I hope there will be some opportunities to, um, to reference this as a, as a tool for the partners members, as well as those who are coming to Past Forward uh, as an option for them. So that's the final work, but there are some iterative steps in the process because, again, I don't think there's any one person who can identify what the future of this field is going to be. Uh, We are a collective, and so I will be publishing blog posts um, about topics that have come up in these interviews that are that are common and they they're the intention is to do 12 of those and so they'll come out uh bi-weekly essentially um and and the intention by the time this is um this is aired is for there to be at least one or two of them published on the Landmarks Illinois website. And why that's important is, is that the intent is to get feedback from the field, from people, in fact, anywhere and everywhere. Uh, it's not just for preservationists, it's for, for people who you know, who would like to give us their opinions and feedback and uh, what they see in preservation, what they don't see in preservation. So it will be publicly available and I will take all of the feedback from the comments and then incorporate that into whatever the, the final, you know, the final publication is. So it's, it's trying to socialize these ideas and incorporate other people's ideas, better ideas in this process so that it's really a collective effort to change preservation practice and the movement for the future. Well, we will definitely stick a link in the show notes to the Landmarks Illinois website and connect people there. As always, this has been fun. And I guess we'll have to have you back for a third time. You're, you're, you're really, you're, you're making the tough sell. It's sort of like Saturday Night Live. I think if you do a third episode, you get to choose the topics and everything yourself. Uh, too. So, well, I'm, I haven't positioned myself this way, certainly uh, for all the listeners, but, um, but I just have fun talking with you, Nick. So it's always a joy to be on PreserveCast. I would be back as many times as possible. <laughs> well, that sounds like fun. So um, before we go, we've asked you before about your favorite historic place. So we won't do that again. But what's your favorite history book Mm. instead? 
Oh, uh, can I can I list two actually? Yeah, I, I guess we'll we'll allow it today since allow you're it. since this is your second your second trip here. Thank you, thank you very much um, for obliging me, everybody. Um, I would say that that my really my favorite history book at this time is *The Color of Law* by Richard Rothstein, and it was published perhaps two years ago, if that, uh, about the um, the systemic impact of redlining, but also beyond redlining the um, the impact of uh, systemic racism through governmental policies at the local, state, national level, and how it has uh, continually impacted communities of color by denying wealth building, um, as well as, uh, you know, the basic principles of human rights. Uh, and, and the reason I say that's my favorite, it's, it's a hard read, everyone, is that there's a responsibility for preservationists and um, as city planners, as I am, I have a preservation planning degree, to understand the legacy of the work that we're doing. Um, the legacy of, uh, of the foundation that we're built upon, which is you know, planning and, and zoning practice, uh, historic districts and landmarking, and intended and unintended consequences of that and how it can inform our work going forward. Um, in a less heady, perhaps, <laughs> the, the other book. So that's, that's um, you would say, the, you know, that's the, um, the nonfiction um, the other is nonfiction, but it tends to be more in the, um, you know, in the historical, it's not historical fiction, but it's just more fun of a read. How about that? Um, is, is a book from 2005 called uh, Lilla's Feast, and that's L-I-L-L-A, um, Lilla's Feast, which is a, it's a true story about um, uh, a British, um, actually a British colonizer of China at the time during World War II um, in Hong Kong. And she um, is captured essentially like many British living in Hong Kong in World War II by the Japanese and put into a prison camp. And it's it's her story of using food um, and actually writing a cookbook uh, while in the prison camp and um, as a way to essentially survive. Um, and why it relates to preservation is it's much like place is important to people and talks about their culture, their history, their identity. Food is another touch point uh, for, of course, our sense of belonging and culture. And it is an, it's an incredible journey that she takes. And her cookbook is actually um, at the British Museum for people to see because it's written on these tiny little scraps of paper that she could find uh, and talks about the, the um, act of survival by you know, really um, touching base with your um, your place, your food, your culture, your your people. Um, so I'd recommend both of those if you want to connect to preservation in a different way. Well, that is a, a fantastic way to end the conversation. Always fun to talk with you. Always interesting to hear your perspective on things. And it sounds like we have um, enough reason to come back for a third time sometime soon. Well, Nick, it's an honor to talk with you and congratulations on your appointment um, as chair of the National Preservation Partners Network. I look forward to continuing to work with you in, in, in my role as a board member. And, and of course, I know that you, you will take this in a direction with your incredible leadership. So um, on behalf of all of us in the preservation community, thank you. And you know, you're, you're, you're the rock star, you're the wonder, the wonderkin to preservation. So I know that you will do great things. Well, thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. 
PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.